Volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello, listeners. This is Sal Sylvester from 512 Solutions. We're an executive coaching and leadership development firm based here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm also the founder and CEO of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool that we use to measure behavioral change in coaching and leadership development. Uh, it's just awesome to be with you today. And as you know, if you've listened to any of the previous podcasts, we're here to explore the future of work and the future of leadership and, and really who leaders need to be in the future to be successful. And as the complexity of our workplace and our world changes and shifts, who will leaders need to be? How are they going to need to show up? That's really where my curiosity lies. That's where I'm excited these days uh, as an executive coach and a leadership development facilitator. And listen, I know from coaching leaders globally that what we've done in the past isn't necessarily what's going to drive success in the future. So I'm excited to be in inquiry with you, my listeners and my guests, and anyone else who's engaged in this podcast to really explore what the future of leadership is about. I'm excited about our guest today, as I am with all my guests, but Tammy Krings is with us. She's an incredible leadership coach and facilitator. I've had the great fortune of working with Tammy on a number of high-level executive coaching and leadership development engagements around the country. And she's an absolute expert in this space. She's a wonderful facilitator. She asks great questions, and she's an expert on the topic that we're going to be talking about. Tammy is also the president and CEO of The Conversations That Matter, a firm that's focused entirely on helping leaders and teams strengthen how they align and how they engage in a whole new way. And at a time where our society is really starving for true connection. So in this interview with Tammy, she shares with us a framework for helping leaders better understand their impact on others and how to adapt their style to be more effective, to stay in relationship with other people and be more multidimensional as leaders instead of using a one-size-fits-all approach that many leaders do with people around them. One topic that came up in this interview is insecurity and how it really is a human reality. And we all have insecurities at some point in time, but what we often miss and we don't understand is how insecurities eat away at corporate culture. I think you'll be interested to hear more about that. So let's go to our interview now with Tammy Krins. Tammy, welcome. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good to see you again. Welcome to the Future of Leadership podcast. I know that- Thank you. I know that you know a lot of the work that you do, a lot of the work that we do together and that I do with clients is really around awareness and emotional intelligence. And I think with all of the mm-hmm. change that we're experiencing in the workplace and even in our society, having leaders who are highly self-aware, high levels of emotional intelligence to me is probably one of the most important characteristics of a great leader. When you think about self-awareness and or emotional intelligence, what comes to mind for you? 
Yeah. And thanks for having me on, Sal. I think emotional intelligence is just such a critical factor right now because we are geared for responding to people. And if we don't have a response that's emotionally sound and we're operating out of self versus connection to others, that's where our emotions can actually kind of take over. So an emotionally intelligent leader knows when to respond and how to respond to really build that connection and forward progress rather than operating out of their own feelings of sometimes it's a feeling of territorialness or a feeling of not being wrong. And so we're protecting and armoring, but an emotionally intelligent leader has the bandwidth and the maturity to understand what is needed most in that situation for both parties. Yeah. Yeah. I've just found that people that really build that connection that you yeah. just mentioned a few different times, they do a few things well, like they really understand what their impact is on others, on process. Mm-hmm. And then they're also able to adapt to what other people need and yeah. use a, a multidimensional approach as opposed to a one size fits all approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really getting a chance to be both observer and participant in that conversation. Mm-hmm. So emotionally intelligent leaders can see themselves in the conversation in the moment, as well as be participating in that conversation. So they catch themselves, right? They're censoring mm-hmm. sometimes around what is most important in this conversation and what is most needed. And sometimes what's most needed is them stepping away or them mm-hmm. stepping aside and allowing their team member or their peer to really process what's happening in that moment. Yeah, that's a great point. What I found is a lot of leaders can, let's say they're in a meeting, they can reflect back on the meeting and say, oh, I did this well, and maybe I could have done that better. But what we see with highly self-aware people, to your point, is they can Mm -hmm. do that in a moment as they're in conversation Mm -hmm. with people. They Mm -hmm. can deliver tough messages or maybe messages to people who might have competing priorities with them, but in a way that moves the conversation forward. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's always with the intention of wanting to make it better. And as we always talk about really being intentional about our impact Mm -hmm. and being able to walk away knowing that the conversation has been left in a better place, or there's a plan of action of how to resolve or how to move forward. And as a leader, always being aware of our place and our purpose in those moments. Mm Mm-hmm. Why is this maybe more important today from your perspective than at any other time? What are some either changes that you're noticing or why do you really have to have this level of awareness today? Yeah, one of the things that we're noticing is just the demands on leadership, I think, are greater, right? We're being asked to do more in terms of paving the way or being able to really help acclimate teams. And I think part of that demand comes from pace where people need to be either the first to market or the first to develop the next great breakthrough because we're expecting that, right? We're now expecting the next big thing. So the the leaders demand to lead the team, to lead the product, to lead the service, I think is greater. And then it's also assessing the needs of the team. I often talk about, you know, the devices that we have are really allowing us to hide behind the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so because we're not allowing ourselves the permission just to be in the conversation, we're losing the art of how to connect and really communicate with each other. So for example, you know, you go to the airport or you're standing in a line 
we're all on our devices. We're not purposely tucking them away to be in conversation. I think sometimes in the workplace, that actually hinders our progress and our connection. That being said, I think it's the leader's role to really help shift that because we need to start communicating together. We're not in the frequent practice of doing that outside of work sometimes. So coming into work, the leader is now responsible to help really align the team. And one of the things we're seeing around that is the need for the leader to help acclimate and build skill for each team member because they're being asked to do cross-functional work. And Mm -hmm. so there used to be a time where we just have the marketing team would just work together. And over time, they all knew each other very well. We shared elements of our life outside of work. We also knew the work we were doing together as a team. But today's workforce, we're expecting to be agile. We're expecting to be effortless. We're expected to move quickly. And with that, we need to have the people skills and the awareness of how to read people, how to better understand their needs and priorities. And leadership plays a role in that, number one, in modeling, and secondly, in really keeping everybody working at a higher level to be able to make that work and teaching their team members how to connect at that level. Mm -hmm. Because we have to work cross-functionally in order to succeed as a business. Yeah. And as we talked about a little while ago, part of what leaders do well when they are able to connect is they have a really good grasp of understanding their impact on other people, whether it's their team members or their Mm -hmm. peers who work for them and even with their manager. And one of the tools that we both use, and you're an absolute expert in this, is DISC. And it's a behavioral style Mm -hmm. profile that lays out Four primary styles of behavior, dominance, influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness. But it really provides people with a framework for understanding themselves Mm -hmm. and understanding others better. Tell us a little bit about the model and maybe even some of the strengths and limitations of each of the styles. Perfect. You know, the model was actually originated in 1928, and it still just holds true today because We're looking at the common patterns of personality and behavior in our workplace and throughout our population. And so what often happens is once we understand more about ourselves, we can then understand more about others as well and how we can actually bridge some of our differences to build better relationships. So in essence, as you explained, the model of D, I, S, and C, D stands for dominance. And in that behavior, we see individuals who are firm and forceful, strong-willed, results-oriented, There are get-it-done people. We have our influence style, which is more of a style of outgoing, lively, enthusiastic. They really look for connection and belonging and help kind of create that social weave within the organization. The steadiness style are accommodating and humble and tactful and even-tempered. And they really seek harmony and really try to help bring... There's a social people element to it, but also around process. They're very process-driven. And then our conscientious style, of course, is analytical and systematic and private and reserved. And they really value accuracy and being right. And so those are all the strengths of our style. But we often talk about our strengths that we use become our limitations. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we see in our work in coaching and working with teams is we have the opportunity as leaders of these dedicated team days to really help create a new level of awareness. And sometimes it's about healing in the workplace. 
Hmm. Because there's been so much misunderstanding and there's been so many assumptions made and there's these barriers that are put up to limit our understanding of each other that once we understand our strengths and then recognize that most of the time our strengths overused are actually what's holding us back from creating that deeper connection, we can start then making change and being able to really show up differently. So each style has their own limitations. And so the fears show up the most frequent and sometimes they're not named. And I think that's one of the benefits of using a framework like this is we can name what's really happening underneath the surface. So for our dominant style that's results-driven, their fear is not meeting that result, not exceeding, not over-exceeding, not winning. And so how that shows up in the workplace is sometimes dominating to the point of, if you can't do it, I'll just go and do it. Or this is so important that we have to win that we might not pay attention to the details of the process and just go and get the results. And then we'll back up and see if we have to correct anything along the way. And I'm sure you see this as well, right, Sal? Without a doubt. And I was just then, working with a group last week and a manufacturing facility, small company, like 30 people, but the two senior leaders are both dominant style people. And yeah. they've got a team that is maybe 60% more of the steadiness and the conscientiousness stuff. And there were just big aha moments about, oh, I get it. If I don't give you clarity, you're just going to come in and get it done. You're just going to go after that mm-hmm. result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, part of it actually just reminded me, part of that is sometimes we impose what we need on other people. Yeah. And as a leader, that too is limiting. So I was coaching an executive a couple of years ago who really was almost getting frustrated in disconnecting from his larger team because mm-hmm. he wanted autonomy, right? He could operate with autonomy and just go get them and figure it out along the way. And he didn't realize he needed to provide more structure and timelines and deadlines and expectations and really very clearly communicate the vision so his team could help him get there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think sometimes we operate out of our own viewpoint of the world and we forget what other people need to do their best work. But that takes a lot of work and effort to know what is needed of each style. And that's the element of being more multidimensional as a leader. Can you move beyond what you need and really understand what other people need? That's what I love about the DISC framework. It's simple to use and understand it. And it's not perfect and it's not everything a person is. People are so much more than just this model, but it gives us a nice, again, framework to understand human behavior and adapt and be more flexible as a person. We see it most powerfully helping to answer the question of why are people functioning that way or why are they operating that way that I don't understand and how it makes a difference, Mm -hmm. right? So we really start seeing how we can tie that to real deep issues and problems and sometimes, you know, opportunity costs that is existing for a team because they don't understand each other and they don't get each other. And so this framework certainly works for that. Just to round out what we were talking about in terms of limitations of our model is the influence style, of course, is lively, outgoing, enthusiastic, but you know, they're often misunderstood as just talking. A lot of people don't see them as substance behind their ideas or substance behind the way they connect. But there are style in the office that really warms up people and gets them on board and starts building some of that buy-in and floating the ideas and really kind of working the people side so that people are ready to say yes. 
Mm-hmm. Our Satanist style is, you know, accommodating and tactful, looking for harmony, and their fear is conflict. And so when there's a discourse or there's a debate or disagreement, that's very unsettling. And so they'll work really hard to have that harmony. So imagine a leader who knows that we have to address conflict. We have to go through sometimes the rough times to get to a better solution, but their comfort in that is not strong. And so that will be their own limitation of not being willing to address that. And we do a lot of coaching with leaders to really help build that assertiveness skill in order to meet their team and some of the team members to do some of their best work. And then our conscientious style, of course, we see that accuracy and precision and systematic analytical style The limitation for them sometimes is the need to be right, or we talk a lot about being the expert. And so sometimes the language of just naming what's really happening underneath the surface of I have a need to be the expert in the room and what that looks like if that's not needed right now. In other words, when we can diffuse that and say, all right, I'm not the expert, or I think I know the answer, but what does everybody else think about this? We start opening up that channel of communication. And again, it's all about building better relationships, deeper connections that we can really help the organization make progress and break through sometimes the invisible drain that's happening within the entire culture. Yeah. You mentioned the drain. Each of these styles comes with a fear and you very nicely laid out what some of those fears are. And part of what also comes with each style is an insecurity. It's very sort of just very human for us to all have insecurities. And oftentimes those are either overlooked or not talked about in an organization. But what gets missed almost all of the time is how that insecurity eats away at our culture. How does insecurity, and we're talking about a person's insecurity, how does insecurity play out into the four styles? Yeah, so those insecurities, I think, really have just a really important realization. We need to realize our own insecurities, right? And I think once we step back and realize how much that's motivating us throughout the day or how it's the undercurrent throughout the day, we start realizing how we need to kind of break through and do some of our own work. In other words, we need to be able to understand how our insecurities are actually fueling our leadership. And oftentimes, it's really a breakdown of leadership, right? So if we operate out of our insecurity, we're probably not being as effective as we'd like to be. So in other words, if our dominant style is operating out of the need to win and their insecurity is losing, they will bring everybody along in order to have to win. And sometimes it's at a deep cost, right? So they're firm, forceful, results-driven. They'll be more firm, more forceful, more results-driven. And their fear is actually to be found out, right? And that insecurity of, okay, I'm not the best right now. So that insecurity of not, sometimes it's also, there's a high ego and high need for control. And so the insecurity factor around control might show up as well. Have you Mm -hmm. seen that show up in some of your programs recently? Yeah, without a doubt. I think that need to win, Mm -hmm. I... See most often with leaders, especially at the highest levels. And sometimes it comes out very subtly, like withholding information from somebody, or Mm -hmm. it may come up as competition in a conversation Mm -hmm. meeting. And so, yeah, that need, that insecurity, I mean, what came up for me as I was listening to you is when we lead by that insecurity as our primary driver of our behavior, we lead from fear. And then that fear creates a reaction. 
as opposed to leading from some higher level or an outcome orientation where passion comes out and there's more involvement and we have action instead of reaction. So yeah, I see mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. very strongly in the workplace. In my book, Unite the Four Mindset Shifts for Senior Leaders, I describe it as a need to be right versus the shift of becoming more aware. I know in the work that Marshall yeah. Goldsmith does, he lists in, I think it's what got you here won't get you there. He lists like 21 or 22 derailing yeah. behaviors of leaders. And his first one is winning too much. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting that there's a connection between insecurity and fear. And then that need to win, especially with that dominant style comes out. Yeah. And, you know, if we're unaware, right, some of our best work is just pointing out the blind spots and helping them discover those blind spots. But if we're unaware of how those insecurities are eroding our effectiveness, we can work harder, but we're not going to get further. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for us to help map out a plan of shifting and changing and understanding the impact of their behavior, the impact of that insecurity on what they're really trying to achieve. And I think through that process, we help people gain clarity, right? Once you recognize the barriers that are there, it's just helping us call it out and name it and claim it. And then we can get better and move the organization forward. Yeah. What's the insecurity, would you say, of the I style, the influence style? Yeah. So the insecurity we see there, their fear is rejection. Mm -hmm. And so because they're so people-focused... And we sometimes say, you know, this is kind of like your social butterfly around the office. There's certainly the ones that want to connect people and have that social approval. And also sometimes we see when there's a group of our influence style, it's almost sometimes like a popularity contest mm-hmm. of who is most connected, who knows more people. And that insecurity of rejection that shows up or the fear of rejection, the insecurity is I won't be liked. I'm not good enough. I can't connect with people well enough. And that we know really has an impact on our workplace because we're second guessing ourselves. And if we're with the right people, or does my boss like me, or that was a weird disagreement, what's that about? And sometimes it just plays out in our head. One of the things recently, I was coaching executive that had an iStyle team member. And he said, do you really mean I need to validate the work as often as they need it validated? I said, absolutely. Because their fear is really not mattering and not feeling like they're really doing their best work. So what works well in that style is validating, appreciating, calling it out, recognizing. It doesn't mean balloons and confetti all the time, but it's recognizing the value of their work because it's sometimes intangible, right? That's that style that the work they do is more intangible and people-related. So we see that insecurity of questioning and doubting our worth and our value really showing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's one of the deepest human fears of, am I worthy? Am I good enough? And it really comes to play with that style. I want to be liked. And so I've seen it happen where maybe that person will avoid having a conversation or that they need Mm -hmm. to ruminate on something that someone said for days to come. So leaders know that they have an impact on people. They often underestimate the impact, especially at higher levels of leadership. But I think with that I style, where there's that tendency to really take things personally, it can be even worse. 
Yeah, and which brings up the emotional component, which we haven't even really talked about, right, is that I style is so connected on the emotional level that sometimes it's viewed as overly emotional and where do emotions really play out at the workplace, right? So if they're feeling that level of rejection in a meeting and it's been really simmering for a while, that emotion might show up. And sometimes leaders don't know what to do with that, right? Part of it is just acknowledging that this is really important to you. And that style is going to showcase some of that emotion when that happens, whereas other styles might shut down. The emotion's still there. It's just expressed differently. Mm-hmm. And so we see some of that emotion coming up. Again, that's partly that fear of rejection, as well as that insecurity piece showing up of, am I mattering in this conversation? Am I of value? So right. emotion's a big component for this style too. What's the insecurity for the steadiness style? The S style. Yeah, the insecurity for our steadiness style, you know, it's the harmony piece is so important. So the fear is being in conflict, not having people really liking. It's a liking factor, but it's being in conflict and not having mm-hmm. full closure or having full agreement. And so the insecurity is kind of one of those softer factors of will I be able to really kind of control my environment? and really make everything just nice and calm, right? We like to operate in calm and very even-tempered and not have a lot of the highs and lows going on. And so when a steadiness style leader sees that, they might want to just kind of hold things steady and mute it a little bit because it feels like it's clunky and you know not as certain. And so sometimes it's just dropped down a couple notches in order to just leave things as they are. So the insecurity of being able to come out on the other side better shows up. And we harbor sometimes those feelings like I'm the one who caused that frustration or I'm the one who caused the Mm. conflict. And then we take it personally as well. That's where we see some of that insecurity showing up. Or sometimes in some leaders I've witnessed and observed is, I don't want to say too much because I want the rest of the team to do the work. I want the spotlight to be on the rest of the team. And so sometimes it's a fear of actually being sometimes bragging or boastful. And really, sometimes we need to model like it's okay to be able to state our successes together, but also take some of the credit of guiding your people in that direction versus just putting it all on them. It's a fine balance, but it's recognizing those insecurities as well. Mm-hmm. The conscientiousness style prioritizes accuracy, a logical approach, getting things right. Yeah. Where do you see insecurity showing up with that style? You know, that one definitely goes into being wrong or being the expert. And so that whole phrase, knowledge is power, is really detrimental to a team when it's used to, you know, kind of be territorial with. I don't want to give away all of that I know because I still want to be viewed as the expert. And so sometimes we see that showing up in my need to be right and my need not to be wrong. And we just had this conversation last week in one of our sessions that we led for teams of, you know, who can be more right Mm -hmm. when we have our conscientious style together, who has the best, most accurate information Or sometimes it's the insecurity of not being right that shows up as the need to always be perfect and always be put together and to be viewed as that expert, whether it be in data or processes or systems or how they project themselves. And so that insecurity really does show up on the other side. The impact of that 
is that people feel like they have to be perfect or they have to be right. And so we lose some of that essence of vulnerability and being able to just explore this together. And what we talk a lot about is there's a difference between being perfect and making progress. So we have to figure out what is needed in the moment. Do we need perfection or do we need progress? Even the language of give me a ballpark estimate isn't very comfortable, but it is one of those acceptance of, okay, but that's what we need right now so that we can make progress. Yeah. I think to me, perfection is a really slippery slope. Number one, it's an unachievable standard. And so then what happens is leaders tend to beat themselves up for never being able to achieve Mm -hmm. that. Others too. So yeah, there is that distinction. And that's certainly an insecurity that we have to work with conscientiousness style leaders. Let's talk about adapting because the tool, what we've talked Mm -hmm. about so far is it really helps us understand ourselves. It understands how we show up and how we impact other people. We talked about the strengths and the limitations and even some of the insecurities. It's also a great framework to say, hey, I've got someone on my team who is this style what do they need differently than I do? And to give you some tips and tools to adapt to that different style. So maybe if you're a manager, you might be delegating something or trying to create a motivating environment or developing Mm -hmm. people or perhaps communicating up to your manager. How do we adapt to each of the styles? Yeah. So, and that's exactly what we try to highlight in our sessions, right? Is it's not just my self-awareness, it's the other awareness that's going to make all the difference. And so... You know, a lot of people say, well, do I have to become something that I'm not? Do I have to give up a part of myself to adapt to other people? And the answer is absolutely not. What we really need is a knowledge of how to adapt to what they need. So our dominant style has a desire for control. They have a need for being able to have a pathway to just go and get it done and be able to really kind of have that autonomy, which you talked about earlier. And so to adapt to them, We want to acknowledge that you have a desire for results. I know you want to get things done right now. And here's what we'll do to help you get there. Or we can also acknowledge that I know you want autonomy. You want some independence. You want a sense of control. Here's where you can control this project. And here's where we're going to delegate it to other people. So part of it is adapting by using their language, mirroring what's important to them. That also goes into feedback. So when we're giving a dominant style feedback, Sometimes we think we have to be almost too firm, too forceful, and there's a fine line there, but we have to be in a firm, forceful, direct, bullet-pointed fashion, brief, because that's how they'll hear us. If we sugarcoat or if we delay or if we him and ha, it doesn't work like that. So we have to meet them where they're at. Our influence style is really adapting to sometimes just that warm-up. It's the friendliness, Mm -hmm. right? So you come into the office, being genuinely interested in how their weekend was. Be yeah. genuinely interested in what makes them tick outside of work and connecting on the human level and at that kind of that people level because they are people focused and they want to know that they have either something in common or there's a value exchange to connect to each other so that they feel they can go do work with you. And so the adapting really comes into acknowledging their ideas, acknowledging their energy, acknowledging how much they like to work with individuals and collaborate to be a better team. And with that, sometimes we forget that it's that warm-up that takes 90 seconds that can really propel them into doing their best work. Mm -hmm. So it's less formal of an environment that you're creating. Yeah, less formal. Connect first. 
Yeah. And I think it's really that difference of for my dominant style, I need to be prepared for, you know, if I'm standing in the doorway of an executive that's of dominant style, I need to be able to get in and out in about 90 seconds, mm-hmm. right? Don't want to waste your time. I know we got to move quickly. I know you have a ton of stuff to do today. Here's what I need. Here's why I need it. One, two, three, any, you know, direction or redirection and in and out, right? You got to be prepared to make that happen. For iStyle, we might stand in the doorway and then chit-chat for a little bit just to warm up and connect Mm. before we go into a similar conversation. But it's just that little bit of tailoring and adapting to give them what they need to be able to really get into a different exchange. You know, our steadiness style, the adapting is also recognizing their desire to process. They're very moderate paced and thoughtful. And that means more of a cognitive thoughtful where they're thinkers and processors. And so how we've learned to adapt to sometimes our statement style is also just giving them time to process, giving them time to think about it. One of my examples, when I was managing a team of about seven people, I had four of them that were of the steadiness style. And now I found my pace was overtaking the room of which we could exchange and they could come back with great ideas. So I had to learn that silence is golden and to really create a dialogue to give them time to think about things and come prepared to meetings so they could give us their best ideas. Mm. If my learning was when I didn't do that, right? When I was feeling like I was just kind of pushing through the idea or pushing through the conversation, I was shutting down the time that was needed for them to come back with some great ideas. And I also learned along the way that I needed to adapt my fast-paced style to be able to create more structure and more timelines and more deadlines and acknowledge, right? I know this might feel uncomfortable right now. I know this might feel like we're not getting along right now, but it's just the process of which we're going from ideation to innovation, right? Or implementation so that we can really kind of move through it. And there's going to be some stumbling around it. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing more and more in the workplace is when we acknowledge where people are at, they start feeling heard and valued. Yeah. The Um, other piece that I'm hearing in what you're talking about, Tammy, this isn't just one-on-one. This is, what does it look like when we've got a collective team coming together? You mentioned earlier, we're seeing more and more cross-functional teams that are coming together. What does that collective style look like? Because if we've got a few I and D people on our team and a few S and C, they operate at a different pace, not right or wrong, just different. And so our meeting norms, the way we operate, our team agreements, they all really have to accommodate those differences in styles. Absolutely. And we have something called the get it factor. And so I will share Mm -hmm. the get it factor for each style. And that also speaks to sometimes the priority questions they have. So if they have a goal... A lot of times we hear some frequently asked questions from each style that also shows up. Our conscientious style of how to adapt to them is really giving them that space to do their best work by creating a conversation around, here's where we want to go and here's where we need you to bring in you know, your very analytical, systematic approach. Sometimes it's about helping us better understand the details behind it or the research behind it or just being able to bring a conversation of it's not about just getting it done right now. It's not about connecting with the people. It's not about the process. It's really looking at the pros and cons of a situation and getting into a good dialogue about what do we need to know before we make this decision? 
mm-hmm. and honoring that they do their best work sometimes in private. And we don't see a lot of emotions from our conscientious style. As a facilitator, that was my greatest learning is I want to see the exchange. I want to see the emotional exchange and the light bulbs go off or go on and be able to really see some of that eye contact that was going to give me a sense of we're in this together, right? We're kind of jiving here in the moment in the session. And I learned kind of sometimes the hard way that what I was needing is some of that validation and what they were doing was just processing. And it was making a ton of sense and making a ton of difference. And they wanted time for reflection. And if I didn't give that to them, then it felt like I was going to steamroll them. So I think as a leader, we just need to know where people do our best work. Our influence style likes to collaborate and be with people. Our conscientious style likes to work in private and likes to kind of have some of that lack of interruptions, right? So they Mm -hmm. can do some of the deep, deep work that really contributes to a team and can really lead the way to analyze the direction we're going. Yeah. Where do our people do their best work? That's super insightful. Thank you so much for being on the Future Leader podcast today. I think our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of this. And again, appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thank you, Sal. It's great talking about how important leadership is right now in our workplace. And the more self-awareness we can gain about ourselves and then about others, I just think we're really going to transform how teams come to work. Yeah, without a doubt. Thank you, Tammy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.